Psalm 8, to the choir master according to the Giddith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our, o, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So those of you who uh, have been around here a little bit, the first time I did this was exactly a year ago. And um, it was an honor and the opportunity. I seized it as best I could. And I wanted to point out that two people fell asleep, and one of them was a family member. <laughs> and I'm not going to name my middle daughter's husband, because that would be rude. <clears throat> so the second time I did this, one person fell asleep, and that person was related to Pastor Chris, but it wasn't Pastor Chris, or Alyssa. <laughs> and so and then the third time, nobody fell asleep. And so I, I'm on a roll. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> So I'm, I'm expecting big things today, because if somebody falls asleep, I'm going to throw something at you. It's just not going to happen. And so, and I got a good laugh from Quinn, too, a belly laugh. All right. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words, um, these words are your words. And we do them great honor and glory by reading them, by diving into them, and by trying to understand them better. And so, Father, my prayer today is that after this sermon is over, that you smile, that you see that, that we're really trying, that we're, that we're your people, and we want to be more like you, because after all, this psalm is about being like you. In Jesus' name, we pray. So when I hear a song on the radio that I like, my ears perk up, every time it comes on. And then, you know, I'll start to get excited and I'll anticipate wanting that song to, to come on. And if I really like the song, I end up buying the whole album. I have a tendency to look at music as an attempted art form, one that I'm horrible at and some people, Serena, are amazing at. Um, and so while one song from the record might grab my attention, the rest of the song is also, or the rest of the album, I mean, is also very, very worthy, and I want to experience the entire thing. And I found over time that if it's a good record, that different songs that I, I just sort of went right past and didn't even notice when I first bought it, suddenly might become my favorite song. So the more I listen to it, the more I get into it, the better it becomes. And I want to tell you that Psalm 8 is like that favorite song for me. It's the one that catches me. I find it exciting, it's full of joy, and you might say it's got a good beat and you can dance to it, but I don't know what that is in comparison to all the others because they're also just as wonderful. The Psalms themselves are grouped into five different groupings, and Psalm 8 is part of that collection that's part of the first 14 Psalms. So forgive me for a second while I nerd out a little bit, but 
Think of Psalms 1 through 14 as that record or CD or whatever you guys might call it now when you upload or download or whatever. And Psalm 8, by virtue of it being smack dab in the middle, is using an ancient Jewish literary device that makes it the focal point of this grouping of 14 songs. So it's kind of like that hit song on the record that's meant to draw you in, but God wants you to look at the other Psalms as well. Psalm 1, which Chris started off with today, Pastor Chris, Psalms 1 and 2 introduce a key idea about God's promise to deal with evil and violence by raising a king through the line of David. Psalms 3 through 7 have David reflecting on his past and the powerlessness he experienced as a younger man. And Psalms 9 through 14 have David joined by the poor and afflicted in what he refers to as oppression. And altogether, these Psalms point inward. They point to the center And in that center psalm, Psalm 8, David is praising God for bringing him from his powerless past, equating him with babies and infants, which we'll explain in a minute, and making those babies, which are us, and God partners in a mighty kingdom to come. So now most of us know quite a bit about David because so much of scripture is either written by him or about him. There's a lot of David stories, and we're going to cover a couple of them today, but the most important thing I want you to pull out of, out of Scripture about David and out of my lesson today is that David is a man after God's own heart, and that is a significant piece of information. So let's try to always keep that in mind as we go through this powerful psalm. But before the psalm starts, you know, I asked Linda to, uh, to make sure she read this part. There's a prelude, and the prelude says, To the choir master according to the Giddeth, the Psalm of David. And I, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I have a tendency to just sort of scan right past those things. And so when Pastor Chris asked me to do this today, I really wanted to do as deep a dive as I could and put it into 35 minutes. And so this was, it caught my curiosity. And according to an ancient Jewish explanation, according to the Giddeth, translates to on the harp which David brought from Gath. So a giddith is essentially a harp-like instrument, and David brought this harp from a place called Gas. And so if you go into Uncle Google and you look up Gas, what I found out is that it's one of the royal cities of the Philistines. And the Philistines are mostly famous for two things. One, in the Old Testament, they're always at war with Israel. They're the bad guys. They're God's attempted foil. And two, they're famous for their most famous warrior, which is a really big guy named Goliath. So when you look at this psalm, try to imagine David playing a harp that he got from Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, one of the Bible's most famous bad guys that David slew. But like Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Which is our first point through this psalm. We first meet David in 1 Samuel And he is the youngest and smallest of a man named Jesse. The nation Israel is a fledgling nation at this point, and they're preparing to fight the Philistine army. And David's three oldest brothers go off to war. But David, he's the baby. He's left to tend the sheep. And you can almost picture David as a young boy. He's too small to go to war. But he's disappointed because he wants to be with his older brothers and he wants to do heroic things. But he's left with the sheep. The two armies, the Philistines and the Israelites, meet at a small valley. And each army camps out on the other side of the valley. 
And so, if you will, imagine a small valley and a hill. It's kind of like Pasarobles, not so much a mountain, but more like a hill. And the armies typically camp just on the backside, almost out of view of the other army. They keep eyes on each other, and they're close to each other, but they're just far enough. Because remember back then, wars were mostly hand-to-hand combat. They had arrows, they had spears, but they couldn't throw them very far accurately, and they certainly couldn't hit something they didn't see that well. So imagine camping with an earshot and sometimes eyeshot of your most dreaded enemy. And of course, we mentioned Goliath. He's the Philistines' most feared weapon. And based on biblical dimensions, he was nine feet, six inches tall. So he's just a little bit taller than Oscar. Every day, Goliath would come to the front of the battle lines where all of the army of Israel could see him, and Goliath would stand there and mock the Israelites and mock God. And on on one day, Goliath challenges the Israelites to pick their best warrior and meet him in the middle at the bottom of the valley for a fight to the death, win or take all. Meaning whoever lost that battle, they were to become enslaved by the other. And the Israelites with a nine nine foot six inch tall enemy were terrified of what this would mean. And so for 40 days, they sat there and stalled. About this time, Jesse sends his son David, the young shepherd, to bring food to his brothers, which was typical back then, and also to bring news back from the battle. And as David's delivering food to his brothers, he can't believe what he hears from Goliath. Goliath is mocking God, which infuriates David. Being frustrated that no one's willing to fight him, David goes up to King Saul and says, let me do this. I want to go fight this guy. And King Saul and his men and David's brothers laugh at David and mock him, telling him he's just too small. It's not going to happen. But David has this incredible confidence. And his response to King Saul comes out of 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, where he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, remember David's been a shepherd, and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. So King Saul and his men were afraid because they were relying on their own strength. But David, David's confidence, like it's always been, is fully in the Lord. Remember, he's a man after God's own heart. So after more pleading, Saul finally relents and sends David. David grabs five smooth stones and he advances down the valley floor to take on Goliath's challenge. Goliath, he's a seasoned warrior. He's got a helmet on, he's got a spear, he's got a sword. And when David starts to approach him, Goliath looks at him and sees a small boy with a shepherd's staff and a sling. And again, Goliath laughs. You see, even though Goliath had all these earthly advantages, David has an advantage that nobody can overcome. David comes in the name of the Lord Almighty, and he proclaims that to Goliath loudly and fiercely. So David puts a rock in a sling, and imagine this boy. He's getting this sling going, and we don't realize this now, but those slings were pretty accurate weapons. They were actually used to hunt. They were used to fend off animals, like David mentions, the lion and the bear. 
And so at just the right moment, David releases that rock out of that sling. And much like a bullet, the rock hits Goliath right in the forehead and he falls over dead instantly. David, the smallest of warriors, defeated, defeats the mighty Goliath because God was with him and David was comfortable proclaiming it. You see, God delivered Israel from their arch enemy and he uses a little boy like David to do it. So this is Giddeth. This, we're still talking about the harp and David imagining where he's going here with this psalm. So imagine David sitting in a meadow, staring at the night sky, wondering at everything he's seen. He's playing his harp from the place where he defeated Goliath, correction, where God defeated Goliath and used David. And David's grateful because David knows only an incredible God could have gotten him to this point. And so he sings the first line from this psalm where David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Another way of saying that might be, my God, everyone's God, how incredible is your name. There's nobody that can compete with you, God. Even your name is too beautiful and too special for us to understand. You, God, are someone of whom nothing greater, none greater can be conceived. And when David writes, you've set your glory above the heavens, he's putting an exclamation point on that original thought. He's saying, all the earth, all the heavens cannot contain God. God is so abundant and overflowing. His glory is above and beyond even the highest and most distant things that man can see or comprehend. And then David, <clears throat> with this psalm, takes a little interesting turn. He says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. So if you use this as one of those flyover psalms, you might go right over out of the mouths of babies and infants. Because how do we derive strength from babies and infants? But remember, that's why I told you the story of David and Goliath, the most unlikely of victors. It's like this. Remember the good old days on the playground? I'm a little older than some of you, so your playground might have been a bit different than mine. But we used to play dodgeball or kickball, and somehow two people would end up being the captains, and they'd tell everybody to line up. And those captains would start picking one by one. They would start doing this, and if you were on that line, you would get worried. Well, everybody except maybe Matt Bailey, because he, he was probably one of the captains. But you might get worried that you weren't going to be picked. And if you were going to be picked, it would be last. Well, you know who picks the last person first and then makes him or her a champion? Our God does. God says, I'll pick the smallest. I'll pick the weakest to demonstrate that this victory that comes from this person is mine. It's God's. Nobody could do this but God. So some other examples aside from David and Goliath. In biblical culture, being the firstborn meant everything. If you were the secondborn, eh, good luck. The firstborn was said to be the favorite. The firstborn got all the inheritance. The firstborn got all the spoils. But in Scripture, God takes two brothers, Esau and Jacob, and he doesn't use the firstborn, Esau, who is the strong outdoorsman, 
to build a nation, he uses Jacob, the frail mama's boy. And Jacob, as many of you know, is the father of Israel. His name was changed to Israel. God took the youngest brother, a guy named Joseph, whose other brothers are jealous of him and sell him into slavery. And yet, because of God, Joseph becomes the most powerful man in Egypt. Speaking of Egypt, God could have taken a nation like Egypt, which was one of the biggest nations in the world at that time, or a feared nation like Assyria because they were so ruthless, and he could have used them to bring in the Messiah, but he didn't. He used a tiny, weak, new nation like Israel, headed by a young, small king named David. And then, like, we don't even need to get too deep into the Messiah, right? Because who would have helped or who would have picked a helpless infant to lead us and continue to lead us into 2022? So I imagine when David is writing the psalm, he's reflecting on his past and he's also wondering about the future. David knows that God has used him and used him greatly. He's used his family. He's going to use his family further. David at this point has no idea what the Messiah looks like. And he couldn't have predicted that the Messiah would be a baby, born a virgin, and that that baby would take over the world. It's just like God, though, to use the least likely. We talked a few months ago about that baby on Palm Sunday. And he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which, as we know, is an animal of peace instead of a war horse. And the disciples, as Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday weeping, the disciples get his attention and they point to a bunch of children on the side of the road and they say, Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And in Matthew 21, 6, Jesus responds to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. So David wrote a verse that a thousand years later came true. And Jesus is quoting David because David fully relies on the Lord, even and especially when things are unknown or things get rough. To relate to this a little bit on a personal level, have have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've said or thought, why would God use me? I'm not special. And if you've had that thought, I just want you to know that you're the exact kind of person that God would want to use. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord does it sound like paul might be talking a little bit about david he's certainly talking about jesus but i think he's also thinking about david at the same time and so when david was told he was too small he boasted in the lord when goliath laughed at him he boasted in the lord People that God uses, like David, are often small and weak. And here in Psalm 8, David uses his talent, his God-given talent, as a songwriter and a poet to boast in the Lord. 
And that verse I read a little bit ago ends to still the enemy in the avenger. David has stilled the enemy in the avenger over and over by trusting in God and as a man after God's own heart by knowing him. And if David can trust God, we can trust God. Which brings me to my second point. God wants us to know him. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? What a question. So let's talk about the heavens for just a minute. Any space junkies in here? Any? All right, Daniel, my man, thank you. I was hoping to have one. So Daniel's been paying to the news lately because for the past week, one of the top news stories that doesn't make you frown is about the James Webb Telescope. And the Hubble Telescope burned up a few years ago, so James Webb is up there. And NASA has been releasing some amazing images of space. Anybody beside Daniel see him? All right, okay. Um, so these telescopes, they're sent into space to get closer to the heavens, and, and they also avoid Earth's light pollution. And we're now able to see deeper and more clearly into space than previously thought possible. For instance, NASA scientist Bill Nelson said the other day, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that's the part of the universe you're seeing just one little speck of the universe. That's how big our universe is. We're so small. On January 1st, 1925, Edwin Hubble gave a presentation to the American Astronomical Society that changed how man looked at heaven. Hubble had been looking through a new telescope, the biggest in the world, here in Southern California back then, and he, along with most other scientists, thought that the Milky Way galaxy was all that there was. Hubble thought otherwise, though, because in late 1923, using his new telescope, Hubble began calculating the flicker of a single star in a spiral-shaped swirl of light called the Andromeda Nebula. This star grew brighter and dimmer in a regular and predictable way. And this is an image from not that long ago, but it kind of shows how that star flickers. And by timing the 31-day cycle of that star, Hubble was able to, for the first time, deduce its distance. So in that slide there, that's the Milky Way galaxy. And Earth is in the Orion arm and not visible to us because, candidly, we're too small. Our sun is too small to be discerned in that image right there. Hubble and the other scientists, though, they knew our location in the Milky Way, and they knew roughly how big across the Milky Way was. But there was a problem because his calculations on that flickering star in the Andromeda Nebula told him the star was further away than our galaxy was big. So that meant to him that space had to be bigger than he thought. It had to be bigger than any person had ever proposed before. He calculated that star was 930,000 light years away. And that's a shocking number at the time. But now to this day, the star that he was looking at, that one is M31. And that star is actually two and a half million light years away. 
but for our purposes, for giggles, let's just stick with 930,000 light years. Because, and remember, that's years, not miles. So let's do some quick math here. And Eric, you got your sandals on? Because I need all your toes and fingers for this math. It takes light from the sun 8.3 minutes to reach Earth. The speed of light is, is 186,282 miles a second. And the Earth at the equator is 24,901 miles around. So what that means is a beam of light travels around the Earth seven and a half times in one second. And since, and I, I did a lot of math this week, because my, uh, my iPhone doesn't calculate these numbers this big. So one year is 31,557,600 seconds. And the speed of light is 186,282 miles per second. In one year, light travels 5,878,499,817,000 miles in one year. Now, if we multiply that number, next slide, please. If we multiply that number by 930,000 light years, in 1925, the best scientists told us that the star they were studying was that many miles away. And that number, if you're interested, is quintillion. We're roughly 5.6 quintillion miles. So imagine, divide that number. If you could travel at a million miles an hour, how many hours would that be? So I know, I know. Cool, Brian, what's your point? Well, this discovery shocked the world. And at that time in the 20s, people were just coming out of a period that we now refer to as the Third Great Awakening. And the, the Third Great Awakening was a time of revival and belief in God. And it's safe to say that most everyone believed in God. Not everyone, but most everyone. But there was a push by a lot of people, think Charles Darwin, who had died a few years er earlier, to question and challenge God. And seeds of doubt started growing in the country and around the world. You see, the interesting thing is, Science and God, according to culture today, live in separate houses. But that's just not true. Science was founded by people of God, but unfortunately it's become, and sometimes often is, people's God. But remember, even our best scientists in 1925 were only off by 1.5 million light years. So once again, man begins to think very highly of himself. But David, David doesn't make that mistake. He looks at the heavens, and I've got to assume that he has no concept how far away they are. He just knows he can't reach them. And he has no idea what Jesus is going to be like, but he has faith, and he trusts, and he knows God is in control. And David says, with the work of your fingers, whether God waves his hand or snaps his fingers, boom. Genesis tells us God spoke those things into existence. And in Psalm 19, verse 1, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Ladies and gentlemen, how do we not see it? How do we not see the sunrise every day? How do we not see the stars and the moon? And how do we not wonder, how did we get here? God's creation declares his presence. And God uses numbers and distance that we can't even comprehend, and yet we think we're so smart 
and we try to use the things that God made to prove that he doesn't exist. That's not right. There's an old saying, just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean God can't do it. And I want to live by that because God is so much kinder to us. He's so much more patient with us than we are with him. And that's my third point. God is faithful. He's faithful when we're not. And then David tells us, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In the Old Testament, God directs his people to make altars. Make an altar here, make an altar there. Have you ever stopped and wondered what's with all the altars? Well, do you remember that famous scene in Exodus when the Israelites have finally been set free? Remember Moses, let my people go. And the Israelites are finally set free, only to have Pharaoh go back on his word and send the chariots after them to capture and kill them. And do you remember when the Israelites were running, they ran into a sea, the Red Sea, and they were stuck and they were worried. And what did God do? He parted the sea. He literally ripped water in two parts. I don't know if you've tried that. It's really challenging. But he rips water in two parts and he creates a path on the seafloor for them to get through. And the Israelites, as the last Israelite gets through that path, the Egyptian army decides to take advantage of it. And they enter that path that God created for his people and not for them. And boom, God lets his hold go and the water comes crashing together killing all the Israelites. I imagine, you know, the, the fly on the water cooler would have had a lot to talk about that day. And how did the Israelites repay God? They whined and complained. Scripture tells us within three days of participating in this miracle, participating in it, they were complaining that they didn't have enough to drink. And just a few days after that, they grumble about their food choices and even wish they were back in slavery because as slaves, they had bread and meat. And isn't that just like us, like me? Something good happens and I dismiss God and I take all the credit for it. But when something doesn't go my way, hmm, we're a forgetful people. That's why God told us people to build altars and why now with the the Holy Spirit with us. We gather weekly, we fellowship often, and we engage in liturgies. And the goal is that so we don't forget. We need to be reminded over and over and over of how great God is and how small we are. Isaiah 45, it says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. So the interesting things is it's God's hand that stretched out the heavens but the heavens are still stretching. That's what Hubble learned, that the universe is still expanding infinitely. I can't wrap my head around something that's two and a half million miles away and still be visible to us, but there's more. Because Psalm 147 says, he counts the number of stars and he calls them by name. We can't see how big the universe is, we don't know which means we can't count the number of stars. It's not possible. And that's why scientists refer to it as the known universe, because there's so much universe outside our knowledge. Because it's still expanding and still growing, 
we won't be able to figure this out, probably ever. But God knows them by name. That's a massive God. And the Son of Man that care that you care for him. The Son of Man is an interesting title here because it's typically reserved for Jesus. That's why many look at this particular psalm and see prophecy as well as wonder of what's going on in that time right there. Because David wrote this a thousand years prior to Jesus' birth. Now, David knew the heavens were beyond his comprehension, just like God is beyond our comprehension. But David also knows a Messiah is coming, and he trusts and has faith in the Lord. And sometimes I wonder, and as I was going through this, I was really trying to make some sense of some things, but I wonder if David didn't look at this future Messiah the same way we might look at our future Messiah, Jesus, who's going to come back for us a second time, as we went through a few weeks ago in Revelation. See, we think we can comprehend how big God is. We think we can comprehend how amazing he is. But honestly, we can't. But his mysteries are so, so, so good. God doesn't, doesn't bend to our will. He bends to our needs, point four. See, God's essence is infinite, so supreme, so glorious, that he transcends words. Thomas Aquinas, one of the early church fathers, said, the infinite cannot be contained in the finite. God exists infinitely, and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. You and I are finite beings. Try as we might to grasp God, try as we might to understand him, and he wants us to, believe me. There's always going to be more. He's always going to be bigger. He's always going to be better. His essence, I'm sorry. So how can we know God? We know God through things like the intricacy of his beauty, the intricacy of creation through his word, through his son, and by understanding a tool called accommodation. God has made what many call accommodations for his created, which is us. Just like we might make accommodations for loved ones. Think the stool you put in front of the sink so that your child can brush his teeth or wash her hands. Or maybe when you go to the market and you see the handicap stalls so people who are less firm can get to the store more easily. Those are accommodations we make for each other. And God is like that for us when he speaks to us in a language and images that we can understand. You know, he provided us with this image of him as a heavenly father. And I don't know about you, but I don't think there's really any more beautiful image than that of a child and a parent loving on each other. You know, without parents or someone to step in for the parents, we all know that an infant wouldn't survive for more than just a few hours on their own. And God's like that for us, even when we're not faithful. He speaks to us in a simple kindergarten language, not because he's simple, but because we're simple. And compared to him, we're very, very simple. So he has to accommodate us just so we can begin to grasp him. And yet, at the same time as he's accommodating us, he's elevating us, he's lifting us up. Because verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The author of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 also. And in it, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that's Jesus, but that's us, a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're made a little lower than the angels here, and the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was also made a little lower than the angels for just a little while. This is the ultimate accommodation, folks. Jesus came to earth and was aligned with us for our sins. And Jesus is that gateway. And if we enter that gate, we will be with him crowned forever. As it says in Revelation 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no night, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You see, Jesus served us. He came to serve. And we're to serve him. Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We as his followers are also meant to serve. God gave Jesus, he gave us, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Yeah, David is certainly talking about Jesus, but he's also talking about us. Dominion over the works of whose hands? God's hands. Another reminder that everything we see in the natural order is created by God. You see, we're created a little lower than the angels, but a little higher than the rest of creation. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve and told them to fill the earth with children, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the creatures. God set Adam and Eve, our forefathers, up as rulers over his creation. But sub subdue and dominion have become loaded words. And as Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, I hope somebody's seen that movie, said, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Because God wanted them, and he wants us, to be in charge, to be good stewards. Have you ever thought what leadership done well actually looks like? Being in charge doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It means you do what's best for the other, even when it conflicts with what you want. If Linda and I disagree on something, leadership calls me to sacrifice my desires, my needs, my wants for her. Jesus went to the cross as an act of submission to the Father, but also as an act of leadership for us. He did what was best for the other, certainly not what was best for him in that moment. So as church members, we're leaders for Christ when we work with our hands. We're leaders for Christ when we interact with, we'll call them the domesticated animals, which are the sheep in the auction. We're leaders for Christ when we interact with the wild animals, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. This planet, its health, their health, is our concern because they're gifts from God and we owe each other and him our best. Colossians 3.23 says, 
whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It doesn't say when you want to. It doesn't say when you feel like it. It doesn't say when you're engaged in this project. It says whatever you do. We're God's leaders here on his earth, and he's depending on us to be good at it, to be good stewards, good leaders, good shepherds to his creation and to each other. And then that's almost it. It's a pretty short psalm, but the last verse, I don't know if you noticed, is a repeat of the first verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This verse is actually the crescendo. It's the main plot point of the main psalm wrapped into one verse. So if you looked at Psalms 1 through 14, this is the most important verse in that entire grouping. And if you get nothing else, get that. And the reason I say that is because this is a Jewish literary device called an inclusio. And what that means is it's a signal, it's a sign, it's an arrow pointing to what the poem is all about. And so since Psalm 8 is the center, this inclusio points both forward and backward. The first verse and the last verse of Psalm 8 say it all. This should be God's people, our mantra from now and forever. In Revelation, we're told that the heavenly beings honor the Trinity, honor God, and say, holy, 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 over and over and over. Well, I propose to you that we honor God here on earth by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And may we never waver in that. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.